Namaste. Welcome to the Hindu Parenting Podcast. Today we have a special guest, the author of a new best-selling novel called Rama of the Axe. Why is this book special? Our children know a great deal about other civilizations and cultures through books. For example, they learn all about Greek gods through the Percy Jackson series and they learn about Egyptian gods through the Cain Chronicles. Many novels in the adventure fantasy genre like Lord of the Rings contain references to Christian mythology. This book, Rama of the Axe, is a game changer for many reasons. To explore all this and more, we have the author of the book, Ranjit Radhakrishnan, a man of many talents. Namaste Ranjit ji, welcome to the Hindu Parenting Podcast. Namaste. I'm so glad to be here and thank you for reaching out and asking me to come here and do this podcast. Um, I have a seven-year-old son myself. So when I heard Hindu Parenting Podcast, I was immediately intrigued by it. And I've listened to some of the stuff that you have out there. And I am so happy somebody's doing something like this. And I'm uh, happy to come and contribute whatever I little I know to this podcast. Thank you for having me here. Thank you. The pleasure is all ours. We are so looking forward to this conversation. Speaking of fantasy, the genre really took off with books like Harry Potter, right? Not just books, but we have seen movies like uh, Avatar, The Matrix and Doctor Strange of Marvel Comics. The makers of these movies have themselves said that they are inspired by Hindu iconography and philosophy. But the thing is, we and our children have only been consumers so far. Uh, we, we've just been reading all these books and not really uh, thinking of uh, doing, uh, you know, writing books on our own. But in your book, I was so delighted to see that uh, for the first time, a practicing Hindu is exploring the depth of Hindu concepts. And uh, so we are on the cusp of an entirely new thing. It is going to be a game changer. So what would you say are the differences between, say, the Western exploration of uh, Hindu themes uh, and an insider's approach, Ranjitji? I think this exploration of Hindu concepts uh, started much longer than the movies. I think it came through music first because you had the Beatles coming down to India and mm. uh, Ravi Shankarji had a profound uh, impact on their music. Uh, there have been songs that have carried on uh, Hindu spirituality uh, in them uh, via, the, uh, via the Beatles, but it has, uh, uh, strangely after them, it, has, is, it hasn't really become mainstream. Now, when you come to the visual arts and books, there have been a lot of things that they've borrowed from the East, not just India, but also from China and Japan. Uh, mm. But if, if you make out the difference there, off late, you have seen... Uh, movies like The Last Samurai, where, you know, they have extolled Japanese uh, culture. China is an economic powerhouse today. So uh, you find a lot of themes associated with uh, Chinese mythology, too. You had a movie on Tibet, I think, uh, starring Richard Gere. Many, many years ago, nothing has come out on Tibet after that. It's all been uh, what China wants you to know. Somewhere down the line, I, I don't think we've taken charge of what our uh, narrative should be. So uh, you have uh, creative people from the West who've been exposed to what perhaps they would call Orientalism, uh, Eastern, mystic. You know, you have all these exotic words associated with it. So uh, there is a surface level understanding which they use to further their stories or the narratives that they want to uh, you know, portray. Nothing that comes out of, like you said, respect to what a practicing Hindu or somebody who's living in the in the religion has a lived experience of the culture, the philosophy can bring. If you take the books of, say, uh, somebody uh, who's a best-selling author uh, called uh, Robert Jordan, he has this uh, very famous series called The Wheel of Time. Now, The Wheel of Time is a, a cyclical concept of time which is not alien to Hindus at all. Uh, this is uh, the Kala Chakra is, I think, almost every uh, Hindu, I dare say, even an Indian would have heard of something like this. 
So our uh, concept of time is cyclical, not linear. He has used, uh, that's just the title of the book, but he's used other concepts like the masculine and feminine powers. Uh, he's, he's gone his own way with it, but the base concept has been taken from Indian philosophy. Unfortunately, like you said, we've been consumers of this. Robert Jordan has great following in India. Um, there have been others too uh, who have used this. But for some reason, uh, when we write of our own mythology, there seems to be some underlying you know, uh, apologetic tone about it. When yes. I started off write, writing this book, uh, one thing that was clear in my mind is that I'm not going to be writing about divinities as people who were human and then over time came to be considered God. Uh, that is not a concept that is Indian. For us, a divinity is uh, is a, a power and essence of uh, something pure that has come down you know, to establish dharma or to show us the way to teach us something. Uh, it is not people who have achieved something great in their lives and then started to be venerated by uh, uh, generations later by people in, in that particular area or that particular geography. If you were to go by that concept, you are going to find thousands of such heroes in our stories who are not considered divinities or avatars even. So uh, when I approach a book, if you can explain this a little in detail. Mm -hmm. uh, sure, please, uh, please go ahead. Yeah, for, um, for me, uh, you know, uh, either watching a movie or reading a book uh, is, is like me being a child at a magic show. You know, I may have seen the trick before, but I want to see how you're going to perform this. I may know how the, the trick is actually performed, what the misdirection is, but I want to see how you do it. Maybe you have a new misdirection there. Nobody buys a film ticket or buys a book to sit there and criticize this. You want to be entertained. You want to be shown something new. Maybe you can learn something new from this. So I'm willing to jump through all the hoops that the author, in this case, we're talking of books, puts out in front of me. But when it comes to that last hoop where you say that, you know, this person did all these great things and over time people considered him a god, that is one hope that I was very reluctant to jump through. I, I, I haven't been able to do it. Uh, somewhere mentally, I cringe when I do that. But um, please don't misconstrue this as criticism of the writing that's happening in India today. But that's just the way I didn't want to write. My grounding in my religion and the practices that I have done do not allow me to see this that way. For me, an avatar is a portion of the divine that has come down to teach us something valuable, to do something, to defeat evil to show that good eventually triumphs over it. Now, this may inspire a lot of mortals. And I think the trajectory should be that mortals hearing the story inspire themselves to do greater things. You know, rather than uh, bringing divinity down to the mortal realm and saying, you know, they were just all humans and there was really nothing. Because the, at the core of this is a little bit of atheism. That when you look at the book, go deep into the philosophy that uh, is being taught, you're being told that these were all great humans. And there really is nothing called divinity. It's just that we have placed our ideals on a long past mortal, and now we consider them divinity. You are coming very, very close to atheism there. And I don't think that is uh, the essence of what Hinduism stands for, though we do have, like you say, charvakas in our philosophy, they have been given a place. So uh, the West has taken uh, a lot of stuff from India and they've used it for their own purposes. I think it's about time that we owned up to what uh, we are doing. We have been a little laggard in this. I think we should take ownership of what is ours and help the world see how they should be looking at us you know, what we actually are, rather than through a Western lens and through their concepts. Uh, I mean, I can I can keep talking on this, especially since you have a whole lot of, uh, to put it very bluntly, trash coming out of American academia about our gods, our philosophy, our divinity. They've moved on from philosophy into uh, Indian history now. And uh, there's a whole lot of 
wrong information, divisive information being put out. And uh, this doesn't seem haphazard or not well thought out. So it's I, I think it's it's about time that as Indians, we stand proud of our culture and take ownership of it and put out to the world how they should look at us and understand us. I think uh, this I, I'm expounding this now, but this was there as an idea at the back of my head when I was writing this book. But mm -hmm. it's only now that I've been able to vocalize it fully. Uh, so thank you for the question. <laughs> Wonderful. Wow, I don't think we could have asked for a grander opening. It's just that we seem to have jumped into the uh, deep end before we even, <laughs> you know, explored the pathways to the deep end. But I think that it's a, a fantastic opening that we've had, you know. So carrying on from right. there, uh, maybe, yeah. you know, this sounds like, a very mundane question after what you've answered right now but maybe you should just start by you know telling our listeners what this book is really about the book title of course as uh, rekha said is called rama of the axe so please yeah. tell us something more about it so we have uh, something called the dashavatara in our culture in our uh, religion 10 avatars of Vishnu. Of course, there have been many more that have been detailed, but these are the 10 main avatars uh, that Mahavishnu has taken on the in the mortal realm to save mankind from various troubles that have beset them at various times. Uh, most of the spotlight is taken by Sri Rama and Sri Krishna. I don't begrudge them that at all. <laughs> Well-deserved. And we have a lot of talk about the coming 10th avatar, that's Kalki. There is the sixth avatar of Parashurama, who you find brief mentions of in the Ramayana, in the Mahabharata. There are stories about him, you know, creating this whole Konkan coast that is from Kanyakumari to Goa, the western coast of India. There is a story of him beheading his mother. And then suddenly there's a story of him being a future Saptarishi. A Saptarishi is an exalted rishi, a mantra drishta, a person who can see mantras and who's here for the guidance of mankind to teach dharma. And a guy who's just executed his mother becomes a saptarishi and he's one of the immortals. So this whole mix, when I stumbled into it, uh, which is a story, which is a story in itself, uh, maybe we'll get to that later, was very intriguing to me. Uh, so, uh, I didn't want to go the usual path of writing. You know, there's, there's a lot of writing that's happening in India. It's a good thing, uh, especially in English, uh, where I, I, I still think we have yet to catch up with our regional languages because this has been, this is, uh, there's so much of literature on from our Puranas and our Itihasas in regional languages. But uh, English is catching up now. And it, of course, it all changed after Amish's. Uh, um, the Shiva trilogy became such a big success. A lot of people have been writing it, but they seem to be sticking to the more well-known uh, avatars and incidents that happened. Mahabharat, Ramayan. I could not find much about the sixth avatar. Probably because we don't have a Parashuramayana, that is the Ramayana of you know Parashurama. We don't have a book like that. We don't have, uh, can we say... Uh, a Samhita of what Parashurama has actually done. These are bits and pieces of stories that you find in numerous texts. The text I depended on was uh, the Brahmanda Purana, a Malayalam version of it. So I got the base uh, you know, plot outline from there. But for somebody who's an immortal who is there in the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, I could not come across enough literature on it. There are a whole lot of stories, but not enough literature. Uh, mm -hmm. I think uh, the most famous book on Parashurama was uh, written by uh, uh, Dr. Munshi. I think we, he was a home minister of uh, Gujarat and one of uh, the major players in the reconstruction of the Somnath uh, temple. Uh, he had written a book called Bhagwan Parashuram. I think this was in 1965. Uh, from what I've read, it was a huge hit. And uh, Dr. Munshi has written a whole lot of books on uh, our stories from the Puranas. Krishnavatar is a is another one. I was about to ask you, is it the same person who is the author of Krishna Avatara? That's that's much, uh, that's quite well known. Yes, yes. So, uh, 
so this is all I could find. There was there was another book called The Legend of Parashuram. Uh, but uh, though I read these books, both of them, uh, like I said, uh, mentioned earlier, talk of Parashurama as a mortal who went on to do all these things. I, uh, being a firm believer in Hinduism myself, my search for the divinity in this man was not satisfied by reading this. Uh, now, a lot of people, when they approach the Puranas, do so with a half-skeptical mind. Uh, even when it comes to the Mahabharata and you hear these uh, stories about the Divyastras and all this stuff, we said, okay, maybe there was a war and all this is just poetic exaggeration. Uh, I think our understanding of that needs to evolve a little more because Itihasa is not just a narration of events that happened, but is also there to teach you the four Purusharthas, which is you know Dharma, Artha, Kama and Moksha. This is it is a guideline to your life, which is why you have a lot of philosophical debates and uh, talk or exposition on dharma happening in our itihasa. So even if you were to consider this an exaggeration, there is a point to that exaggeration. And I, I don't think we should lose sight of that. So my search for the divinity of you know what was so divine in Parashurama that he is considered one of the avatars of Mahavishnu was not satisfied by this, uh, you know, the reading that I did. And I never thought I would write a book on him. I never thought I would be a published author. Um, this happened because uh, one of my short stories got published in an anthology called Unsung Valor. And I had written a story about on Shakuni. Uh, I, I have two big fans in my house. Uh, that's my mom and my sister. And they were urging me to write. So during the lockdown, um, uh, my wife they and son got Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, full credit to them. Uh, so when the lockdown happened, my wife and son were caught in Chennai. She had gone to visit her parents. And I was stuck in Bangalore. And there was nothing much to do. And I said, why don't I sit down to write? I think a part of what helped me write this book was a little bit of the spiritual practice that I was doing. And I can't help, uh, you know, underline the fact that as parents, sometimes we, uh, especially for a generation before us, maybe our parents or our grandparents' generation, they were probably devout, had uh, a belief in our religion in their hearts. But in practice, you couldn't see it much in everyday life unless you were, especially if you were living in a city. Maybe in the rural areas, you had a little bit more. And I, uh, after writing this book, and after it coming out, and I and I used to think back as you know, this is not the trajectory I wanted the story to take, but it's it's taken a life of its own, own and gone somewhere. I, mm -hmm. I I firmly believe it's because of some of the rituals, some of the pujas. I mean, I pray every day, uh, at least in, in the evenings when I can. Once a day is a must. That somewhere this rubs off on you somewhere. If you do it long enough, if you're sincere about it somewhere unknowing to you there is something that's you know that grows within you that helps you see things that probably wouldn't have seen if you were not doing this so uh, if there are you know i'm sure there are parents listening uh, to this podcast it's not too late to start you know my son is 7 years old uh, i require him to say his prayers before he sleeps and before he goes to school in the morning now, uh, now he rushes through this, and it's it's a little bit of, and especially when you're late. Uh, I mean, it's 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 a comic sight to see him finish the whole thing on time, but but I make sure he does it every day. This is a little bit of grounding. He's going to get a secular education anyways in India right now. He's not going to be taught all this, and uh, if we don't safeguard something so valuable for our children, I think. Uh, we are impoverishing them somewhere because no matter how much you try to lose your identity, your identity is not going to leave you, especially when it comes to philosophies, ideologies, theologies that are inimical towards your identity. You are always going to be known by that identity. So I think this, the way through for us is to own it, to be proud of it, and say, yes, this is who I am. Deal with it. You know, I, I think being apologetic about it has to be 
thrown off. It's that uh, is uh, long past its expiry date. I think what you have explained here, uh, perhaps, um, you know, explains why this book has authenticity written all over it. You know, you read the book and then you you just feel the authenticity. And I think that is grounded in um, the actual sadhana that you that you do. You also mentioned that your reference text was primarily the Malayalam version. Do you think that helped you to convey uh, the authenticity and integrity? Because doing research in English is not really the same thing, right? Great question. Um, if I can uh, make a point before I come to that, uh, I, I think um, a lot of people may be a little scared, uh, a little uh, you know, apprehensive when they hear terms like sadhana. Uh, I, I, I'm not an evolved soul or an enlightened person or something of the sort. It's just a connection with my gods, with my with my belief system, with my religion uh, that, that I'm talking about. This is not something where, you know, you go to extreme forms of, uh, you know, renunciation or giving up stuff. I am a householder. I live a normal life. Uh, mm-hmm. But this is something which I feel that keeps me in touch not just with religion, but with our culture, with our philosophy. And this is something really very simple. You just pick probably a mantra of any form of the divine that appeals to you. And you spend 15 to 20 minutes maybe chanting his name or her name, mm-hmm. or lighting a lamp, something. It, it, a, a ritual has a power. If, you, if you're in the West and you're talking to corporate, uh, you know, I, I forget the term that they where they where they're telling you how to get ahead in life and life coach they call it, yeah life coach they will tell you you know the importance of the morning ritual what you should do and you know how you should follow this and uh, you know how that brings discipline into you a ritual with a divinity is on the same lines but a little different where something that grows in you grows without you knowing till some, suddenly one day you see oh my god this was not something that should have happened. Or I, why didn't I think of this before? You would know a little time. The, the gratification is a little delayed. So uh, I would urge everybody to start simple, but do it consistently. It can work wonders in your life. Probably uh, a living proof of it. So <laughs> from being, uh, you know, I, I never thought I would be an author one day and I'm, and I'm, I'm actually blessed that, you know, Devi chose me as a vessel to put the story out there. After talking so much, I've completely forgotten what the question was. Could you please repeat that? <laughs> I, I was just wondering if, uh, you know, you mentioned your reference text was primarily uh, the Malayalam version of Brahmanda yeah. Purana. If, yeah. Right. Uh, so did that help you? Because uh, doing your research and reading in English is totally different from being... Uh, you know, immersed in a, a language that is closer to the Indian civilization, right? One of the languages that belong to us rather than think in English or absorb uh, research material from English. I'm, I'm sure it did. I think one of the reasons would be that uh, there are there is so much of Sanskrit in Malayalam. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, uh, though I don't read Sanskrit, um, I was getting probably the next best thing to it. A lot of our regional languages have a lo- lot of Sanskrit loan words. So uh, I'm sure a lot of people can say this. It, it helped me reconnect with my mother tongue for sure. And uh, I'm not sure with the kind of ideology that uh, gatekeeps translations and you know, and you know access to our holy books in India. I was going to get you know the true version of the story. Now, at least in uh, Malayalam, I thought I would be able to, you know, feel a little closer to the source, maybe sense, get a sense of the story better. Um, and I, right. it, it was sometime since I read something in Malayalam. I, I have read Empty Vasudev in Malayalam, a few other people, but it was a, it was sometime, uh, you know, in the past. So uh, when I was going to this, I was actually looking for an English version, but my uncle had this book. 
and I said, okay, let's do this. Let's actually sit down and read this Malayalam. Though I'm a little rusty, let's read through and see what happens. And I'm sure it helped because uh, if you see the book, uh, there are a few Sanskrit terms that I've used, which felt so natural, you know, when I was writing it, that I didn't want to give it English translation to. I think it came from me reading the Malayalam version and going with the flow and that impact that it had on my uh, psyche while I was writing this. So I'm glad I read the Malayalam version. Uh, I had already read the Parashurama story of K.M. Munshi and uh, the other books in English. And uh, so this was a slight change. Like when you're writing and you and you go back to editing what you have written, usually what writers do is they change the background and they change the font. So they're not looking at the same thing again. You know, there's a, the visual cue is different now. Uh, they, they probably change the size of the font as well. So that helps you see things that you have missed when you were writing or when you've reread. So I think reading the story in a different language than what I am I was going to write it in, I think it I think it helped me, uh, you know, get into the story. You know, sort of what what, what can I say? Uh, understand a little bit of um, the divinity of this avatar. Uh, so I'm actually glad that my uncle gave me this book. <laughs> yeah, for uh, families listening, some of the words that uh, Ranjit ji mentions are uh, words referring to time, like nimisha, muhurtam. You know, they just feel so natural when you read the book. And there are also words and concepts like uh, avadhuta, mahavidya. So these are things that have been woven so naturally. And uh, they convey so much meaning that it would be wonderful if uh, uh, parents with older teens can read them together and then probably get a, uh, um, a good conversation going within the family about uh, what are all these concepts? What are all? It it'll lead to discussions on Hinduism, on philosophy, and uh, it'll be very rewarding. That much, I can assure you. Yeah, the the book dwells uh, on the yogic power of the mind to fight battles. In addition, of course, to the physical prowess, it's uh, it's rich in uh, you know. Uh, scenes of war and scenes of battle and all that but it's also extremely rich uh, on the yogic side of our uh, culture you know uh, but it was interesting to see Ranjit ji that uh, uh, just uh, today I think there's an interview that uh, the New Indian Express has done with you uh, where they have inverted the whole thing they call it the Harry Potter-esque approach uh, when you talk about the Agnya Chakra and how Parashurama sort of um, opens up that. Uh, and they say almost as if we have borrowed it from Harry Potter. So, uh, <laughs> or I, I would, uh, you know, really like your answer on, uh, on uh, these things. Uh, it was huh. interesting to read your uh, answer in the interview, but we would like to hear a much more elaborate explanation. It was fascinating, actually. Yeah, please. See, um, in all these fantasy books that I've read, uh, written by Western authors, there's always a duality at play. Good and evil, uh, the one true creator and uh, the evil one who stands against him. And when you read uh, the stories from our Puranas and Itihasa, Ravana prays to the same Mahadeva that Arjuna does or Sri Rama does. It is the misuse of the powers granted that is making him a antagonist or a villain. Not that he owes his allegiance to this, uh, you know, anti-God power that exists somewhere. We, we don't have what may be called an anti-Christ or an anti-God, a Satan, a Shaitan. We don't have something like this. We have almost all the great heroes and our great villains that we have stories about almost somewhere or the other have either shown an enormous amount of bhakti or have undergone a tremendous amount of penance tapasya to achieve powers that a no normal ordinary mortal wouldn't even if you were to take you know um, the divyastras and the extraordinary powers that people have and if you were to look at just the saints of india you know, people who can magically heal you with their touch or 
uh, if you've read autobiography of a yogi where he talks about all these great yogis who can do uh, stuff that you know literally seems like out of a fantasy book this doesn't come without you concentrating your focus doing your sadhana and having a guru to guide you along the way now uh, we live in a time where you can do anything and still be called a hindu uh, so you can you can uh, all the mantras are available on the net today you can just go on to some page take something that catches your fancy and then start chanting a lot of people caution against this and i think with good reason i think the way out of this probably would be for each person to you know ask their forefathers what sampradaya they belong to or what what is the ritual that is usually followed in their clan or their family and try and touch base with that and see where that takes you this is not something that you need to hurry through or you know uh, you have to push yourself into you can take your time find out go there with a completely you know scientific point of mind to see what this is about and then slowly get into practicing this now uh, when it when it comes to yogic powers uh, when you look at uh, the great uh, personalities in our stories in the puranas and the itihasas they have always you know strived to access that kind of power through their devotion through following certain rituals that were put forth to them this this you will find almost you know throughout the stories that you know, right from the beginning uh, from probably the devotion of prahlad to what happened to mahabali to how parshurama became so powerful to sri rama and okay sri krishna himself is called yogeshwara we we have mahadeva who is probably the first yogi he is adi yogi so this is something that is not just for mortals to practice but even for the divinities themselves mahavishnu goes into yoga nidra i mean now if there are people who are practicing uh, you know ekadashi vrat uh, this is a couple of ekadashis back was when uh, mahavishnu closes his eyes for a period of two months four months sorry so th- this is something that is so imbued in our culture that when uh, and something that miss that's missing in our popular narrative because the divyasuras seem to sound more like you know average you know uh, web pages where they say the brahmastra was like an atomic bomb and that's not it uh, you need a mantra to invoke powers of this sort and it's not just in a bow and arrow it can be imbued into anything depending on the spiritual power inherent in the man who is saying that mantra and that spiritual power comes only through tapasya this is something that is missed out in popular narrative uh, they only show him you know probably standing on one leg uh, praying to mahadev and you know saying om namah shivaya and then suddenly mahadev appears and here hold your astra this is what we wanted that's not it actually mahadeva is not going to give you a divya astra unless he knows you have the purity and the spiritual prowess to wield it in the first place and now i i think in in the hurry to make the story uh, more interesting or to move the story along a lot of people skip this but when you skip this you're missing the essence of what our philosophy truly is because uh, given the four stages of life brahmacharya grihastha vanaprastha and sanyasa at the end you are moving towards acquiring that much of power in you so that you can wipe out your karmas and finally attain union with the divine which is why when they give you the four purusharthas also they put moksha right at the end they are asking you to go through everything else and then strive for this yogic power that will take you closer and closer to the divine so it doesn't have to manifest as divyastras or uh some superhuman power it can be for an ordinary person the power to finally have a darshan of your favorite deity have him guide you through you know your life see you through the uh, rough patches get you closer to understanding the reality of our existence probably and this may and this doesn't necessarily ha- have to happen in one lifetime now we have 84 lakh yonis or kinds of birth that we go through before we become human beings 
and here you're given the chance to comprehend what divinity is all about and where you should go from being a mortal that is not possible without yogic prowess so this is not something that is uh, you know that is an am- ambition for saints or uh, great warriors of the past this is something that should be an aim for an ordinary householder going going about his life that your practice like we talked about sadhana sometime back is helping your yogic power in some way this is not going to help you manifest superpowers or become something that is rigorous practice best left to people who are inclined to do so from a very early age but you can do your little bit for your soul for your you know progress towards attaining oneness with the source from which we came by doing a little bit of step every day and taking yogic prowess out of our stories is doing great injustice to understanding the characters that are there in our story and to the story itself you mentioned that uh, the the power that comes from a mantra or any kind of a yogic power is um, it can be uh, infused into any weapon we usually hear about uh, the bow and arrow the mace or maybe even the spear but a parashu is not something that we have ever heard of except in connection with this story would you like to talk about this specific um, weapon and axe the parashu that's a great question because that was one of the major hooks for me writing the story because uh, every time i hear of somebody doing a warrior a kshatriya undergoing tapasya to receive weapons it's usually depicted as some kind of an arrow or a dart but i think our texts are clear that it's a mantra that can be imbued into anything that the person has the spiritual prowess for mm-hmm. so in the story you you can see kartikeya arjuna use grass imbue grass with the mantra and let it loose mm-hmm. uh, usually in battle when you're faced with weapons coming your way people imbue it onto a projectile of their own so that's the popular notion of, of this so when i started writing the story the one thing that kept me a few things that kept repeating in my head was how how could he execute his mother just because his father commanded him to do what what would be the story there and why did mahadeva give him an axe of all things now an axe is something that if you throw you have to go and fetch and come back this is not a divyastra that can cause you know whole scale damage or you know destroy so many people at at one at one go why was an axe given to that man and, and we don't have a story of this axe being given to anybody before or after mm-hmm. uh if you were look if you were to look at certain ta- tantric forms of ganesha you're going to see an axe in one of his hands and there is an interesting encounter with uh, ganesha that parashurama has later on you would probably see an axe in one of the forms of uh, sri durga but it is not an a weapon that you know everybody you you find a lot of warriors who have who wanted the brahmastra or who wanted the parshapata from mahadeva nobody has either desired for the parashu neither was it given to anybody other than parashuram and mm-hmm. his name though though he is ramabhadra by birth he's come to be identified so much with this weapon that there had to be something to it now what could be the reason you also have a slight hint given there that you know when he uses it in battle the blood does not go off the blades it disappears into the blade mm-hmm. so this is another fascinating thing you don't you have not heard of any weapon this way so while i was looking at it there was you you mean to say that even in the versions of whatever references that you have looked up whatever you have read uh, huh. it mentions that this axe when used in war it absorbs all the blood it goes into the blade yes. that's yes, not it, part it, of it, your fictionalization no 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 okay. this this okay uh, there is a particular verse that i've used to describe the axe as well as the wielder of the axe so this one line drinker of blood is actually mm-hmm. there in the puranas which describes the axe and mm-hmm. uh, uh this place that we know 
from the Mahabharat called the Kurukshetra was known by a name earlier, and that was called Samanta Panchaka. That is the land of mm. five lakes, and that place was created by Parshurama because he had to expel the blood from his axe, and it mm. took five okay. big lakes of blood. Mm. Oh, that much, that much blood had gone into the axe. So wow. uh, okay. I know it sounds very gory and all that stuff, but it's it's. Uh, when you read the book, you will understand why, especially part two. So uh, while, while I was looking at this, I also came across a story about this sword called Chandrahasa, which Ravana. Mahadeva goes to Ravana. And you don't find a reference to this anywhere else again. And he gives it to him with a, uh, with a precondition that if you use it to do something that is adharmic, it will disappear from your hands. And it actually does. Mm-hmm. So so if a chandrahasa has a precondition like this what would be the condition that you know could have been there for the parashu was there something like that these are the uh, these are the thoughts that preoccupied my mind before i um, uh, you know started writing it and i wasn't sure how to take it forward because we don't have a story of how the parashu was formed mm-hmm. whether uh, you know um, why it was with with mahadeva and not with Brahma or Mahavishnu. Why did Mahadeva have to give it? There should be a story to that. There should be a reason to it. Uh, I think I've I've tried to explore more of this in part two rather than part one. Okay. But uh, if you read part one and you've seen the description of the acts that it's given there, uh, there's a particular rune that I mentioned which plays a very important part in part two, not only with regards to the uh, Parashu, but also with the philosophy that Parashrama comes to embody later on after uh, you know Arjuna's death. Okay. You mentioned the word gori. Um, I wouldn't look at it as a negative thing necessarily. For me, the most compelling thing about the book is uh, you know, a sense of the primal power and raw energy of Hinduism. You know, that's an aspect that we have totally lost because we are, we've been so preoccupied with Ahimsa and Vedanta. And, uh, you know, that took a primary place in our imaginations. So I'm so glad that people can get a peek into this side of Hinduism filled with uh, valor and uh, Kshatra. This also makes it a compelling read for teenagers, according to me. Uh, that's a great observation because it reflects... Uh... The current reality, doesn't it? We have a whole lot of armchair warriors on our side. The street power belongs somewhere else. And I think you have this very famous quote. I'm not sure if it's, whether it was Winston Churchill who said it. Uh, that when the peaceful community sharpens its sword, the Hindu is busy sharpening his argument. Uh, <laughs> and that won't do. Uh, and uh, you mentioned the word shatra. I, I, I think... Uh, the great thing about it is the Parshurama here is a Brahmin and he's the one who's teaching you Shatra. So when mm-hmm. you were talking about yogic prowess earlier, I think you can you can safely conclude that you need not just physical prowess but mental prowess too if you need to get somewhere you know, in your civilizational battle that's being fought today. I, I, I think probably uh, this, this uh, sort of what uh, can be called a little bit of passivity from uh, the Hindu side, I, I, I'm not sure how far back I can trace it. Without being disrespectful, probably uh, the Bhakti movement that came, which uh, perhaps was required for the times it was there, uh, where, where, when it started out, uh, which focused more on your personal connection with God and uh, devoting everything to Him and you know singing praises of the Lord. Perfectly valid. I mean, there are people who are uh, sort of inclined towards that path. But we are also a people who have known war throughout our existence. I think this is commonly understood of Jews abroad. Mm -hmm. But we are no less people who have been, you know, either facing a whole lot of attacks or were willing to bring force on an enemy if he needs to be put down. Somewhere this message has got lost because even if you look at the popular depictions of Sri Krishna himself, you have these very cute images of the baby Krishna. 
then you have uh, all these images of Rasalila and how charming he was. Then you have the philosopher guide kind of uh, Krishna mm-hmm. of the Bhagavad Gita. But you lose sight of the fact that he was a warrior. You lose sight of the fact that when he was invited by Kamsa to come to the capital, this teenager boy could bring down two mighty wrestlers. You know, almost all depictions of Krishna I've seen do not show any kind of musculature at all. If you look at something, uh, you know, if you look at depictions of the Ramayana too, you are not going to see a muscular Sri Rama. Somewhere we have, you know, I, I'm not saying that he has to look like a bodybuilder or something. So that kind of physique would not have been available at that time anyways. But uh, Sri Rama is described as having, you know, wide shoulders and long arms and being strong. That physical strength has been missing even in our depiction of our gods. Thankfully, yes, I think probably right. Mahadeva has from it. So when you show Shiva, you show him as a yeah. you know physically powerful person. He's escaped this. Mm. But popular depictions of Sri Rama and Sri Krishna have somehow strayed there. I- I'm not sure what the roots of this are because both of them have taken up arms. Both of them have displayed you know feats of valor. So many battles, so much prowess in them, but the popular de- depiction seems this way. Which, uh, to tell you the truth, I was very, very particular about the cover of the book because I yeah, did not. That's want, very clear. Yeah, I, I, I did not very- want to be sitting in a yogic posture. I uh, did not want him to look like in, you know a sort of uh, Amar Chitra Katha ish depiction of him. Mm-hmm. I wanted it real and raw. So when they were asking me for inputs on the cover, I told them that I want to see the avatara in battle. You already have this notion that Parashrama was an angry avatar and nothing more. The content of the book could take care of that. Mm-hmm. But I do not want to lose the, you know, the potency, the power that this avatar had and turn it into something where he's talking peace. This, this is not an avatar that will talk peace. This is not an avatar that is going to come there and say, okay, I don't care what you do against me, I'm going to forgive you. He's going to hold you accountable. And he's going to be willing to step forward and do what is necessary to establish dharma. Which which is one of the things I really loved about this avatar when I was writing it because he was so clear in his intention. And he's not motivated just by revenge because of the incidents that happen in the story. He has a clear sense of what is dharma, what is not, what he can do, what he shouldn't do. And I think somewhere in this, uh, when we when we talk about uh, Advaita and Vedanta, we are some somehow we we have become comfortable doing that. You know, we don't get out of our comfort zone and stand our ground when we are supposed to. We have started to do that now, but we have a little bit more to go. So I, I, I think that there's a lot that we can learn from this avatar and we can learn a lot from all avatars, but this is something I think we are lacking in, in our society today. When I was, when I was looking at uh, researching Parashrama, I came across this very interesting tidbit about a controversy that had happened in 2014 or 15, maybe. There was a Republic Day parade and there was this Arjun battle tank that had a golden axe painted on it and it immediately became a very communal thing. Hmm. Oh, why? And there was a golden axe that was painted on an Arjun um, tank that was uh, taking part in the Republic Day parade. And uh, what's the narrative communal about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, so how it, did they spin that? The, the spin was that they have communalized the armed forces now by putting Parashrama's battle axe on a tank. <laughs> this okay. ran till somebody pointed out that the same division of the army did march when Manmohan Singh was was the prime minister and they did have the same golden <laughs> battle axe there. So this, okay. this was something. Okay. Uh, which then led me to another point that we have a lot of uh, regiments in our army which have their battle cries or their regimental mottos from, you know, um, Jai Badrakali, Ayogorkali. Yeah. Yeah. You have something mm-hmm. like that. You have Jai Bajrangbali. But I couldn't yeah. find something that said Parshuram. Mm. I see. Yeah, mm. and and the only thing I could find was that when India, uh, 
got her independence from the british and the partition happened and the and the pakistan army had invaded kashmir and you needed to airlift indian soldiers there uh, they had used these dakota aircraft uh, mm-hmm. to move the army and one of them is now being maintained uh, at the army museum i presume and that aircraft is called parshuram oh so okay this, so we have uh, a man who has destroyed 21 akshawanis that's like lakhs of soldiers in 3 mm-hmm. days and we don't have a regiment named after him we don't have uh, you know a, a war cry in his name somehow uh, the avatar is there but not there he seems to be existing in in the fringes never in the in the mainstream probably mm. because he he is very forthright in his opinion he will tell you very clearly what is right what is wrong which probably is not so fashionable today and and, and i think a little bit of the caste politics also feeds into this uh, which yes. is which yes yes which is, which is tragic because because this is a man this is an avatar who uh, of mahavishnu who's a devotee of mahadeva who has a vedic hymn in his name also is a devotee is, is a disciple of the avadhuta dattatreya which means it connects him to the nath uh, sampradaya he also mm-hmm. has tantric texts that have been credited to him he is a srividya sadaka there is no other avatar of mahavishnu that is associated with so many things and yet you know there's so little that is known about him what i think we can learn from him is to draw our boundaries when you say this far and no further to set our red flags and say that okay if this happens it's a no go this is not going to happen we are not going to allow this to happen i i i think that little bit of the word shatra that you that you used needs to grow in all of us as a community as believers of this faith we need a little bit of that we are having such a fascinating conversation with ranjit ji however there's still so much more to discuss but you will have to wait for that for the next episode until then namaste namaste